So let's look at Second Peter. And I'm so excited to do Second Peter after last week. And, and really, because all the work uh, Zach and I put in it, it'd be sad if I was like, ah, I don't really want to do that. Uh, but it's just a really great book. And it's, it's going to be a little different. And we are, in our normal fashion, going to blaze through it today. We're going to get three words in uh, to it today. Uh, so some of you are going to go home and do the division. You're not going to add up all the words and divide it by three and be like, well, I can just, this is going to be my funeral sermon, apparently, uh, being in Second Peter. But uh, So last week we got into this intro into Second Peter. These are the, the, the final words that we have of this, you know, really probably most well-known uh, disciple, uh, at least, and especially I think the one that we really connect with. You know, when, you, when you're going through the disciples and the apostles, it's, it's hard to feel a connection with Paul. To be like, you know what? I feel very Pauline, uh, and in fact, even as I say that, it's like, Ugh, should you even should you even say that? I mean, I remember this guy was a murderer uh, before salvation. So, but with Peter, uh, I feel like I've had some very Peter-like up and downs in my Christian life, and so Peter is this man that we've seen grow from the time he was first a disciple. Grow from a, from a new disciple to, to then an eager follower of the Lord, zealous for the Lord's work. And then that same guy becomes a frightened denier of the Lord and is running away, uh, uh and, and denying the Lord at the time that he should have most been faithful. But then he becomes a faithful witness, uh, in the early church and the church is booming. And right after the resurrection, he's the one preaching and you got Pentecost coming and even Peter, old messed up Peter is the one preaching and the gospel is exploding. But then that same guy becomes a perverter of the gospel and has to be rebuked for it. You don't even know the gospel, Peter. And it's like, oh my goodness. Uh, But finally he ends up this courageous messenger of letters uh, like these. And it's that guy that is going to be stirring us up by way of reminder. The things that we need to remember what you know, uh, believer. Uh, but before we get into, into all that, uh, Peter opens the way most New Testament letters open uh, and how most letters during that period of time opened, he opens with a greeting. And what's interesting is there are still in some cultures, uh, you know, in America, we're fast, we're succinct. I'll write a message to somebody. I may put their name in it. I may put my name in it. I may just put a sentence, like in, like an email. Now, in text messages, you don't do this. Uh, that would be forbidden. But like even in emails, you know, sometimes, you know, it's just, it's in a, like a reply chain back and forth. You're just like, okay, hey, this is what I need you to do. Hey, this is what I need you to do. In some cultures, though, like if you, uh, Ralph can verify this, except he's not here, so he can't deny it either. Uh, in, in, when you're talking to pastors in Africa, uh, or people in Africa, they will often begin simple email conversations with you with a greeting. Hello, Pastor so-and-so. Uh, I hope everything is well with your family. Everything is good here. And then they'll have like one sen- the, the whole reason that they were texting you is to be like, hey, can you post this? Or what do you think is this? But they always begin it with a greeting. So I think that's very interesting. That's how it would have been done here. You wouldn't begin a letter really without a greeting. You wouldn't just jump into, hey, church, this is what's going on. This is what I heard's going on. So he starts out with this very formulaic uh, greeting. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the greeting found in verses one and two. Uh, and, and see how this greeting is really going to be useful and uh, something we can learn from. So let's stand in the honor of reading God's word. 
And let's read uh, first, or first Peter. I'm going to do that a thousand times till I get into it. Second uh, Peter uh, verses one and two. Now again, uh, we stand because we want to recognize this as the great blessing that it is. We also want to uh, just give honor to the Lord for giving it to us. And we know that it is not standing alone that does that. But we hope the standing of our bodies is mirroring uh, the standing uh, and attention that our heart is giving God's word as well. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that today we will see that even in something like an introduction, even in something like a greeting, you fill your word with such rich truth that we can learn from, from just the smallest words, pictures of our salvation, calls to our lives. And Father, I pray that that would encourage us to chew on your word, to take it in in big chunks, and then to take some of those chunks and just meditate on them all day long. And that is my prayer that we'll be doing with this book in Second Peter, Father. I pray that, God, you'll be taking it and that your spirit will just be teaching us throughout the week and months ahead, uh, what we need to be learning and how we can take your word and be obedient to it and apply it in areas of our lives we would have never thought of. So God, please work that in us. We ask that knowing that that's what you promise you will do. And so we rest even as we ask. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so 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 First Peter uh, started with a greeting and now we get a, a very similar greeting to start saying, Peter, if you want to, if you want to flip over and see how First Peter started, and then look back over here, uh, it's a very similar greeting. In fact, some of the greeting is the exact same to start the letter in in First Peter as it is in Second Peter. Uh, but the question is, is the is the greeting even important? I think sometimes what we do is we think, well, we can just breeze through the greeting, right? He's just laying out who he's writing to and who it is that's writing, but I already know it's Peter because it's in the title of the letter, so I don't need him to tell me he's Peter, and I don't need him to tell me that he's writing to the church. I know these are letters to the church. This is just a, this is just a greeting. It's just superfluous, right? It's, 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 there's nothing deep uh, here, and so people wonder, can we just breeze through it when we're reading or, or when we're preaching? Do we even almost need to to look at the greeting, because it's not even the body of the letter. This is just, the, this is just a greeting to these people. Uh, isn't it just some, like we said, you, you said this is what they do to all letters, so is this just formulaic? Is this just a piece of courtesy? Right? If, if I go and I talk to someone and they write me a letter and they say, you know, dear Chris, uh, and then give, I don't break down the deer and go, man, they called me dear. You know, that really, they must really care for me. Uh, or is that what we're doing? Is that what's going on here? And I think what we're going to see is, is, so is the greeting important? Yes. We're going to see that greetings in these books are, are very important and you shouldn't. No, you shouldn't just breeze through even, and of course you shouldn't breeze through any word in scripture, right? Uh, but you shouldn't breeze through the greetings, uh, either because yes, they are formulaic, but it's that formula that is actually going to help us see when the author breaks from the formula to make a point. 
so, for example, when someone writes you dear, you don't think about it. But if someone changes it to something else, I don't know if you know, that catches your eye. If someone's like, hey, you know, whatever. No one ever writes to me anything but dear. Uh, if it, or like if it's to whom, you may, to whom it may concern, you automatically know this person doesn't know me. Uh, or really who they're writing to. So it's that change in formula that lets you know the situation. Uh, or if you had written all these letters, dear, and then you write to your, your husband or your wife and you're like, most beloved uh, spouse. I mean, that person is going to know. I mean, I'm making a change from the formula to make a point, to make a point in this letter. So, so that's what we're going to see here. The, the greetings in these letters, and you'll see these in all the, all the letters throughout Scripture, uh, often give us a little taste of what the rest of the letter might be going into. Little signs about where the author is going to go, or at least things that he wants us to solidify before he gets into the main points. I mean, if you remember back to 1 Peter, what did he say? He wrote his letter to elect exiles. Do you don't think that was a very important thing uh, as to where he was going to be going uh, in 1 Peter? And so in the intro here in 2 Peter, we're going to see that it's no different. And the first clues about what 2 Peter might be about can be seen in the differences between the openings of 1 Peter and that of 2 Peter. There are a lot of similarities, but there are some obvious differences too. Uh, Let's begin by looking at the very beginning of this verse. In 1 Peter, Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But that's not what we see here in 2 Peter. There's a change. He doesn't write it the same. In 2 Peter, he says, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. So let's begin there. Let's begin by looking at that idea. Why does Peter, one, first, the the one that people geek out on, and I think not necessarily geek out on. Why does he call himself Simeon Peter? You know, that's why does he call himself Simeon? What, who is Simeon Peter, right? Uh, because we're used to Peter or maybe what? Simon Peter. But who is this Simeon guy? Is this like his brother? Uh, is, this, is, this a, is this a close relative? Who's Simeon Peter? Well, the words, the, the words Simeon and Simon are really the same word. Simeon is just the Aramaic version of that name. So uh, it, it's less common for Peter to refer to himself as Simeon Peter or to be referred to as Simeon Peter, but it's not unheard of. He's actually been called Simeon before. Uh, If you look, for example, at the book of Acts, in the book of Acts, Peter has already been called Peter uh, and and, and when he's giving this talk. Uh, But in Acts 15, he's referred to simply as Simeon. So Peter, he delivers this message. It says Peter talks. Peter gets up. He talks about the gospel, about the gospel moving among the Gentiles and the danger of distorting that gospel, one he was very familiar with, by requiring law-keeping for salvation. Uh, Like I said, something he himself fell prey to. Paul and Barnabas then get up after him and give their own evidence of God moving among the Gentiles. It's Acts 15. It's that Jerusalem council scene. And so Peter's defending God's work among the Gentiles and and, and all of this. Then James stands up to talk about what has just happened. This is Acts 15, verses 13 and 14. So it says at the start of Acts 15 that Peter gives this message. Peter talks. But then in Acts 15, 13 and 14, it says, After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon 
has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. So the Bible has no problem just using those different uh, names, Simeon, Simeon Peter, Simon Peter, uh, even even Cephas or Cephas, if you want to uh, Englishize it. Uh, so what's important here, so we don't, we don't really have any reason to think that the name Simeon itself, that he's trying to say something by putting in the name. Wait, he calls himself Simeon. What's he trying to get across? Uh, we don't really know that there's necessarily anything significant there. Um, what is important isn't the name. We know this is Peter. We know this is Simon Peter. We know this is Simeon Peter. What's important is what he says about himself. And what does Peter say that he is? A servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. A servant of Jesus Christ. That's the change. Now, those two terms together, servant and apostle, are two hugely important terms for understanding our identity as Christian believers and for understanding God's work in spreading the gospel, especially the the writing of the New Testament. Very important that he's an apostle. We'll talk about that next week, assuming we get through this this week. So let's look at those two terms, and especially the first one, and see how important it is for understanding uh, the letter of Second Peter. First, he says he is a servant of Christ. Now, the, the word servant there is one that I think is most accurately rendered slave. And so that's, that's the word we'll use. That's what we're going to say. Instead of servant of Christ, this is a slave of Jesus Christ. Uh, I think that in terms of understanding what this word implies by, by that word servant there, the doulos of that word, the, the Greek word that is there, it, the idea of a slave is more accurate in our mind than the word servant. In fact, most good translations, if they do translate it servant, will have a little footnote or something next to the word to let you know that it could also be translated slave or bond servant to let you know this is not just, it's not just your normal servant idea here. So why is it translated servant? Why not just translate it slave? Why did these New Testament or why did these New Testament translations, why did these English translations translate it as servants rather than slaves? Well, first, First, don't get all your feathers ruffled and think that they, tra- they moved it from slave to servant because it's some sort of giant liberal conspiracy uh, to make it where we don't see that we're slaves, that they see that we're servants. Uh, what happens uh, here is, is it seems to be an instance of history in this. We, we all know that language changes, right? We know that words change, meanings change, even within the same language. A word can change over time from meaning one thing to another. All you have to do is read the King James Version of the Bible and you'll see, you'll read it and know that this was written in an English that they at that in the 1600s would have read and gone, yeah, it makes sense to me. And we read it and we have to translate the translation. Uh, we have to go, okay, unless you're someone like Mr. Jackson who like speaks King James. Uh, and then it's a natural sort of, sort of locution. Uh, but for us, many of the words, even in the King James version, don't even mean what they meant when the King James was written. Uh, and so what happens is when you have these first English translations coming about in the 1600s, they were, they were met with this word. What do we do with this word doulos, this Greek word? Do we, do we use slave? Do we use servant? Well, in England and really on the European continent, slavery had been for the most part eradicated. Uh, it was still known in England, uh, but 
But slavery in England was of the slave trade variety. So think chains, shackles, meat, uh, sort of slavery, chattel slavery, as, as we call it in U.S. history. So the translators, when they're looking at doulos, are going, well, it's not, when we use slave, you're going to get that picture. And that's not really the picture of a slave in the first century. So it would be inaccurate. In their mind, that's what a slave was. So they didn't want to translate it slave because that's not really the picture of slavery there. But there was a position that was similar to slave, the concept of a servant then. Because in the 16th century, remember, a servant was built off of the idea of the medieval serf, a person who was property. So a servant in the 1600s could not choose, I don't want to be employed here anymore. I'm going to go work and I'm going to build iPhones or anything like that. They couldn't choose to move about. They were tied to the land. In fact, if you bought the land, you got the servants. Now we look at that and go, those weren't servants. Those were what? Slaves. And I go, aha, exactly. Uh, that's the point. That's what, so when they translated it servant, they, that word servant was more in line with our word slave today. In fact, I think if these translators in the 1600s were here today and had witnessed like the industrial revolution and uh, all of the change that would happen sociologically, they would probably use the word slave instead of servant. But uh, in, in, in their idea, a servant uh, when they're first translating this is someone who has no rights, which is similar to the first century slave, someone who has no rights, who has no freedom of their own, who are bound to their master. So then in the 1600s, when they translated this, that's why they used the word servant. Uh, I wish we would change that. Some translations have started changing it. The CSB, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, it, it translates it slave all the way across. Uh, but that's a more, you know, sort of modern translation. So, um, so again, today, the word, I think the word servant actually diminishes the punch of what God is calling us to and what Peter is saying that he is. Uh, so I think slave is a better translation. Now, again, this is not the modern version of slavery. Uh, so when he says he's a slave, don't think, you know, uh, roots here. Don't think, you know, beatings and whippings and any of that sort of thing going on with slavery. It's a term to describe someone who serves at the will and direction of another, someone who has no personal freedom. That's what that's what that's what the idea of a slave is getting across here. A servant in our mind often has freedom. We think of someone like a butler who's working as, as long as they please. That's not the picture here. A servant can quit. A servant is freely serving, but a slave is bound to their master. A slave has had their freedom forfeited. And so Peter cons- considers himself a slave of Christ, one whose freedom has been given up in service to their master. But again, Peter's not creating some new category here. by saying When Peter says, I'm a slave of Christ, Peter's not like, Oh, you know, as God's inspiring him to write this, he's not like, wait, I can't say that I'm a slave. That's so, that's shocking. You know, where would that come from? And so as he's writing Second Peter, he's like, this is going to blow their minds. They're not going to be able to get past this word even into the letter. This idea of being a slave of God for his people is one that is seen throughout Scripture. From, from the very beginning, Christians saw themselves as slaves to Christ. That we are people whose wills, as Christ said, whose lives have been forfeited to follow him. That we have given up everything 
to follow him, that we have laid down our lives, that we have died to follow him. Now, one of the first times Christians are called slaves is found in Acts chapter 4. In in Acts chapter 4, it's alluded to. It's alluded to a ton of times before that. For example, some of the things Jesus said, like when he says, well done, my good and faithful servant, is actually well done, my good and faithful slave. But we'll get into that a little later. But in Acts 4.29, we get the first real explicit reference to Christians as God's slaves. And oddly enough, this, has, this is a story that has Peter in it. It's a story we know in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John, remember, are imprisoned for sharing the gospel. And they remember what the people say? They charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John say back, We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. It's that very, very famous scene in Acts chapter 4. Well, after that happens, where they're like, don't speak of him. And Peter and and John are like, we can't help but speak of him. We can't help but talk of the things we've seen and heard. The people, after that, they get together and they pray. And they prayed for boldness in the face of their suffering. And it's a very... Very first Peter thought, right? And you could maybe even trace a lot of what goes on in first Peter back to the scene. Because in this prayer in first or in Acts chapter four, Peter and the group are going to pray that God, we know that you're in control even of this suffering. So give us boldness to go out. That God, we know you're in control of, of all suffering. And they pointed to the suffering of Christ. So look at Acts four, twenty seven and twenty eight. It says, for truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. And before you go, wait, it says servant there. It's a different Greek word. So don't be like, why is it? Why'd you put servant there? Different Greek word, paidos. Whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's a very important sort of set of verses, just in general, of understanding God's sovereignty. Uh, a phrase that they'll actually, they actually use in verse 24, that the sovereign Lord, that God is sovereign even over evil. But in verse 29, they begin their request to this sovereign Lord. So God, we know you're sovereign. You're sovereign over everything that takes place. You're sovereign even over handing Jesus over to, to the Gentiles to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So God, we know even in the worst evil that ever happened on this earth, That was according to your hand and plan. But now, in light of that, we want to be bold, God. We want to be bold in our witness. And so look at what they do and how they refer to themselves in Acts 4, 29 through 31. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants, your slaves, to continue to speak your word with all boldness, While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. What did they call themselves in verse 29? Grant to your servants, grant to your slaves. So these early Christians, they understood. So when Peter says, I am a slave of Christ, this is what he's already prayed back in Acts chapter 4. That God, we are your slaves. So, so God, be look upon and grant this boldness to your slaves, Father, that we might serve you the way we're supposed to serve you, that we might be bold because our master has emboldened us. But even that, 
in Acts chapter 4 is not new. Even the Christian, even when they're praying that, they're not praying some new idea that was given to them at Pentecost, right? And so the Holy Spirit came and said, now you're slaves of God. Uh, no, this goes all the way back to Genesis, all the way back to the law. This idea of believers as God's slaves goes all the way back to when God first had uh, relationships with, with men. In fact, it's a common theme in the Old Testament that believers are God's slaves. To see the parallel uh, of the words, so you can see that when he calls us servants, he's meaning more than just servant. Take, for example, Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis 15, 13, God tells Abraham, The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. So here again, we see the word servant, but servant doesn't quite cover that meaning. Right? When you're thinking of the, of the Jews in Egypt, do you think, what, do you, what were they in Egypt? They were what in Egypt? Slaves, right? You don't go, they were servants. And picture all these Jewish butlers uh, moving across the Egyptian landscape. You don't see that because they weren't. They are beaten, broken down slaves of Pharaoh. They are crying out, Lord, let us out of our bondage because we are slaves and a slave cannot unbind themselves. So he's, when he says in Genesis 15 that your, 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 your offspring will be servants there, that's why it should be slaves. That's what they're going to be. It's that same word. They're going to be slaves there and they'll be afflicted for 400 years. Now that's important because God uses that same word to refer to his people in Leviticus 25 to describe his relationship between himself and his redeemed people. Leviticus 25:55 For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. Same word that it used in Genesis to describe their relationship that was going to happen between them and Pharaoh. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So same word to describe the people in Egypt. He says they're my servants. And so, and, and so I think from now on, and, and I'll do this from now on in our text, I'm going to translate the word slave as it is in, in many English translations. It's going to show up, or servant, it's going to show up as slave in, in your notes. Uh, and when I read it, you'll see slave there. And that's why. Because the picture in scripture is obviously different from our picture of servant. And I think slave grabs more accurately what the Bible is calling the people to and what the Bible says God's relationship is with his people. And so you see a very similar prayer in the Old Testament to one we find in Acts in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1. So this idea is not new uh, in, in Second Peter. It's not new in Acts. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. In fact, this prayer that we see in Acts, we've seen a similar prayer in Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1, just for context, so you can remember the, the people are returning from the exile. But Nehemiah 1 says in verse 3 that they are in great trouble and shame. And Nehemiah realizes that all of their problems came because they forgot that God was their master. And so they didn't treat God like their master. They were disobedient slaves, and so punishment came. Look at Nehemiah 1, 5 through 11. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive 
and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your slave that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your slaves, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we've sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your slave Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your slave Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you are your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen and make my name dwell there. They are your slaves and your people whom you've redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your slave and the prayer of your slaves who delight to fear in your name and give success to your slaves today and grant him mercy uh, in the sight of this man. So just like the early church, Nehemiah is crying out to God, God, take care of your slaves. Take care of, uh, be a good master to those who are bound to you. In fact, the Old Testament imagery of slavery, we could have looked at approximately 250 verses in the Old Testament that describe God and his relationship with his people as that of slave and master. So, but I felt like that would be a long Sunday to look at 250 verses. That's just to show you that, so we just hit some of the high points to show you this, what's going on in the New Testament is not new. This is how God has referred to his relationship with his people that he is the master and they are his slaves. It's not surprising then that that same imagery is found in the New Testament. Again, not just in 2 Peter, but in other places. Let's look at a few examples there. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Remember Peter. So Peter begins 2 Peter by saying, Simeon Peter, a slave of Jesus Christ. But he's not even the first one to do that. Paul already did that. Back in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. He says the same thing in Philippians. He says the same thing in Titus, chapter 1, verse 1. James also begins his letter by calling himself a slave of God. Jude begins his letter by calling himself a slave of God. So it's a common way for writers of the New Testament to refer to themselves and their relationship with God. It was common because that's how God's people had always thought of themselves. Paul doesn't consider himself, and when you look at, so when you go to the book of Romans, and Paul starts out Romans 1, I'm a slave of Christ. Paul's not considering himself like some sort of different level Christian. Like he's a super committed Christian. Other Christians are just servants. God, I'm your slave. You know, I'm, I'm really committed to you. Paul's going to show us all believers are slaves. All believers are slaves to God. In fact, he's going to show us that every person in the world is a slave to something. Everyone is a slave to something. So it's not a question of will you be a slave or will you be free? It's a question of who's your master? So Paul lays this out in Romans 6. So Paul says, I'm a slave. But then by Romans 6, he says, guess what? You're all slaves to someone. And you better hope that you're a slave of God. Because otherwise you're going to have a big problem. Romans chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. It says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin have become what? Slaves of righteousness. So he says, before God saves us, we are slaves. 
Slaves, he says, to sin. So before salvation, we're slaves to sin. But God saves us. He sets us free. It's like Jesus said, you know, Jesus in John chapter 8, you know, you will know the truth and the truth will what? Set you free. If the Son sets you free, you will be what? Free indeed. So all that freedom, God says, yeah, that's happening. Paul says, yes, God sets us free. But he doesn't just set us free to float around in our freedom, right? This isn't some sort of hippie response that happens to us when we get free and we're all just floating around with flowers and just doing whatever we want. So we see, what do we see in Romans? Paul describes our salvation as being set free in order to become what? Slaves. What does Paul say in Romans 6.18? And having been set free from sin, we have become what? Slaves of righteousness. What, what Paul is doing here is he's painting for us a picture of what happens in our heart when God saves us. That the heart that once loved sin and hated righteousness, just go back to Romans 3, the heart that once hated, hated, hated righteousness and loved sin, that was enslaved to sin and its passions, where we were slaves to impurity and lawlessness, which led to more unlawlessness. This is going to be that's what he says in the very next verse in Romans 1.19. That's where our heart was, slaves to that sin. But then God changes our hearts. We don't set ourselves free, right? Because a slave can't do that. What happens? It says he sets us free from sin. So we're slaves. We're not just servants of sin, right? We're not just servants of sin who are like, hey, let's just do what sin wants to do. We are enslaved to sin. And God sets us free. And now that we're set free, he makes us what? His slaves. So instead now of loving sin, we love righteousness. And that leads to sanctification and eternal life. Look at Romans 6, 22. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. See, this is is that same word. So it's interesting that sometimes like the ESV and translations, they'll translate it slave here, but they'll just translate it servant in other passages. The same word. I'm just being consistent throughout the text. Uh, Have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. So he says, God saves us. We're slaves to something. We're either slaves to sin or God saves us and he unchains us from sin. And then by his grace, chains us to righteousness because then as slaves of God, that that slavery to righteousness leads to what? Sanctification and its end, eternal life. Now, we we might think that slavery is is a bad thing, that it's just part of the fallen world. And so being a slave to God is just what we have to do for, for right now. But this slavery actually continues into eternity. Revelation, the book of Revelation, begins by letting us know that this letter is written to God's slaves to show them what's going to take place soon. It serves as a promise and a hope to these believers. But the hope that he gives them in Revelation is not that they'll no longer be slaves, but that eventually they'll be slaves that are always faithful. So you look at Revelation 22, 1 through 4. This is a discussion of the new heavens and the new earth here. And look at what it says about God's people. Then the angel showed me the river 
of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His slaves will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be where? On their foreheads. They are still, we are still going to be claimed as God's possession. We are His. His slaves will worship it. So even in the new heavens and the new earth, in front of the river of life, we will be proudly proclaiming, I am not my own. I am the Lord's. And we'll be rejoicing in that fact. We'll be celebrating that. In the new heavens and the new earth, we'll be free from sin because we'll be fully enslaved to our master. I mean, we could go on and on even in the New Testament. I said 250. There's, there's over 70 some odd passages in the New Testament that speak of believers either as slaves of God or that use the image of slavery to teach us about the Christian life. So when Peter is saying, I am a slave of Jesus Christ, you need to recognize that's what the Bible says we all are if we're his children. That Peter's putting himself in line with biblical teaching that stretches back all the way to the Pentateuch. From both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Peter, Peter may be famous, right? We all know about Peter. He may be a leader in the church. He may be an apostle. God may be speak. God is writing his word through Peter's pen. But the one thing Peter has in common with all of us, with all believers for all time, we may not be heroes. We may not be leaders in the church. God's, God is not going to have you write a book. But one thing that will be true of all of us, and it's true of him, is we are just slaves. But there's a distinction When we say slaves, the distinction between this slavery and the slavery we're used to like seeing in American history is in this slavery. The Bible is very clear. Being a slave of God is a very, very good thing. It is not a curse as it was when the people were imprisoned in Egypt. This slavery is a blessing. Now, the Bible is clear. Not all slavery uh, is is good. Some slavery is bad. It's not 11.55. Her clock's wrong. Um, some slavery is bad. So, for example, you see, uh, you know what? We're going to stop right there. We're going to see, because the next thing all goes together. We're going to see that slavery to God is a good thing. We'll see that next week. Uh, but we'll just stop this week and see that, without a doubt, you are God's slave. Uh, and so the question is, this week, what can you meditate on? What can you think about? Is that how you are living? Can you, like Peter, proclaim, I am a slave of Christ. Can you honestly proclaim that? Can you say, hey, I am a slave. Peter, so in, in understanding Peter, when he says he's a slave, recognize that what Peter's saying is what he's writing, one, is not his own. So that's important in understanding the book of Second Peter. Peter's not just freewheeling here. 
Peter's a slave and his pen is a slave. And so what Peter's writing here is what God would have him to write. So we need to take it not as Peter's word as he's going to be very clear in chapter one, but as God's word. But the other thing we should ask is, can we, like Peter, say, I am a slave of Christ? Now, like I said, sometimes people will say, I want Jesus to say to me, well done, what? Good and faithful servant. I want us to realize two things that are going to be important in tying to this idea of slavery. One in in that is realize, he says, well done, good and faithful uh, servant to all believers. Okay, so uh, not just some. So if you look at that passage where Jesus says that, he says that he says to every sheep, if well done, good and faithful servant. He separates the sheep from the goats to all the sheep. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. So if he doesn't say well done, good and faithful servant to you, it's because you're not a believer. Uh, so we don't, we don't want to set up some secondary goal like I'm a Christian, but I really want to be a well done, good and faithful sheep Christian. No, well done, good and faithful is what he's going to say to all sheep. So if you're a sheep, you better be good and faithful. Uh, but, and because what is he saying there? He doesn't say well done, good and faithful servant. He says, well done, good and faithful slave. And I think that's an, that will help us understand what the verse is saying. Because if you think it's just about being a servant, then you'll look at your life and say, well, I can do a little bit for Jesus here. I can serve Jesus here. I served Jesus today. I did a little service today. Did you do some service today? How'd you serve Jesus today? Well, I served him this way and I served him here and I did that. And so you can ask, have I done enough service for the Lord? But if you switch that and make it well done, good and faithful slave, then it's not a question of, did you do service to Christ? It's a question of, were you a slave to Christ today? Because that's what he says, well done, good and faithful slave. You might think that you can serve the Lord by giving him a Sunday every week. But that's not what he says well done to. He says, well done, good and faithful slave. The bar is then raised higher when we use the idea of the word that Jesus uses, Jesus expects his sheep to be faithful slaves to him. So if you want him to say this to you, how does your life show that you're a slave to God? Is he not just your first priority? Is she your only priority? Slaves didn't get to sit around and say, man, where am I going to prioritize my master in this, my life? I mean, I've got my, my kids and I really want to do this. And, you know, we had all these activities we wanted to do. And when am I going to fit my master in there? <laughs> Maybe I'll find a spot for him. A slave doesn't get to do that. If God is your slave, he's not your first priority. If God is your, if God is your master, he is your only priority. And everything else in your life flows out of that. And that's one of the problems when people say, you know, faith, family, whatever. It, no, it's faith and everything else flows out of that. You're the type of husband that you are because God is your master. You're raising your family the way you do, not because family's got to be second. I got to put it above this or above that. No, because then you can, you can end up saying, I've done enough here of the Lord and now I can give a little bit to my family. And you don't get to do that. You never get to stop serving the Lord and start serving your family. You never get to stop serving the Lord and start doing the extracurricular activities you wanted to do because you've done enough for the Lord. You've met your quota for the day. You are to be his slave in everything. Or you're not his sheep. 
And so if you can look at your life and say, I'm going to give God this piece and this piece and this piece, but then, uh, then I'll have served him enough and I can do the rest for me. That is not by the grace of God what he calls you to. He says, can you look at your life and can you say, I am a slave of my God. Because God says, when he saves you, he makes you his slave. He enslaves you to righteousness and to him. 618, 622 of Romans. It's not, have I served God enough? It's, is God my master? So ask yourself, are you living the life of a slave or have you just added God to whatever you've decided you wanted to do? What priorities you've decided will supersede him? How you feel like you can fit him into this multi-leveled tier of your life? And Christian, we can't do that. And that's what causes problems in our lives. When we do that, it causes problems. It sounds good on a, on a doily or on a poster or when we talk, hey, I'm always faith, family, football or whatever. It sounds good, but it's a lie. It's God. It's, I'm a, it's a, what are your priorities? I'm a slave of Christ. My priorities are his priorities. Whatever he wants me to do, I'll do. If he tells me to do it, that's what I'm going to do. So when I raise my family, these are the priorities. I'm going to make sure in my family, you can see, hey, this man is raising his family as if he is a slave to somebody. Because he's not choosing how to raise his family the way he wants to raise his family. He may want to do this and that and this and that. But he's saying, I can't do this and that and this and that. Why? Because I'm a slave and I don't get to choose what I want to do. I don't get to choose how to spend my life. I don't get to choose how to spend my day. And so I have to faithfully love and serve my family like this. Why? Because God is my master. And if I'm not doing that, even though God tells me to, then I am not treating him as my master. And either I'm rebellious or I'm not a sheep. That should frighten us. Because God says when he saves us, he saves us and he makes us his slaves. And we're going to see next week that that is the most glorious thing that our God could do. And I guarantee you, anybody who's trying to live their life as slaves of God, anyone that you talk to today and they talk about what they had to give up and what they had to do, no one looks back and says, the worst thing I did was treat God like my master. Everyone says, the best thing I did, the best thing, is when I treated my master like the master that he is. When I quit kicking against the goads and I started following my shepherd wherever he leads. And whenever he leads, that's all, uh, wherever he leads, that's where I'll go. And whenever I do that, that's the happiest, best life I can find. My master's not a mean master. He's the best master this world could ever have. And he's one that will lead me, not just through my life here, but he'll lead me into eternity because there's no master like my God. We would amen that. We would believe that. Christian, we've got to live that. Let's pray.